When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Violin Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Mugala. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have conversations with violinists from around the world. If you're new to the podcast, thanks so much for joining us today. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast platform of your choice so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out. It also helps out the podcast to provide more episodes for you. Listeners, you are in for a treat today. My guest today is the concert master of the Philadelphia Orchestra, Mr. David Kim. And we have a really, really awesome conversation about all things violin, how to practice, what it takes to be a leader of an orchestra, and also what his favorite Korean food is. So stick around to the end of the episode. Before we get to this week's tip of the week, I just want to just pitch the Violin Podcast mailing list. I'm going to leave a link in the podcast notes so that way you have access to that. So that way you can get on our mailing list. We're going to be offering a lot of products in the future. So, you know, if you're signed up for the mailing list, you are bound to see something in your inbox, in your email inbox for discounts for upcoming upcoming products, especially if you're a beginner. Um, I'm going to be releasing a product around the summertime that will help you get set with the violin, learn how to get the right teacher, and I'll be introducing that product hopefully in the next coming months. So you want to make sure that you are signed up for that mailing list. And if you're not, go to uh, violinpodcast.com and get yourself signed up for the mailing list. Congratulations to all the music students around the world who have just graduated. I'm so proud of you. And you're also kind of a little nervous, I bet. You just graduated. We're still in these kind of uncertain times with covid and, you know, we're still kind of locked down, but we're slowly starting to pick up the pace. We're slowly starting to open up, especially in the music performance halls. And today's tip of the week is just try, trying to set the mindset to helping you be successful once you leave college. So any conservatory music student grads, grab a pencil and notebook because you're going to want to take notes. Here we go. Tip number one is to write down a one-year goal and also a five-year goal. You want to make sure that you are very crystal clear on what you want to be doing in your music career. Putting these goals on pen and paper and giving yourself like a contract for you to sign for yourself will give you a little bit more accountability for you to actually achieve those goals as opposed to just being like, well, okay, I say this and I'm like, yeah, it'll eventually happen. If you say that, you already lost the game. And you want to make sure that you are writing them down and you are committed to these goals, whether it's a one-year goal and a five-year goal. And the reason why I'm not saying like 10 years is because a lot can happen in 10 years. Heck, a lot can happen in one year. It's good to have short-term goals. and It's good to have a little bit more long-term. You don't know where you're going to end up in five years. So that's what that's my tip number one is to write down your one-year goal and your five-year goal and I would just simplify to just one goal, whether it's to be like, okay, I want to make sure I am preparing for auditions for a master's degree or for an artist diploma, or uh, even if you're auditioning for, or if you're thinking about auditioning for colleges in like the following year, if you're a junior right now and you're listening to the violin podcast, then you want to be setting up these goals right now for you to get into a conservatory. 
one of my main goals when I attended school in my undergrad was to be in an orchestra. I thought that having an orchestra job was going to provide stability. It was going to provide an income. And it was, and also I was just very passionate about orchestra music. I was part of an orchestra for many years in high school and I found a lot of joy in it. I liked being a part of a team. But, you know, five years later, after I made that decision my freshman year, actually it was, again, if you're, if you're a new listener, then I auditioned for, a, for an orchestra and I really didn't find any joy in the audition process. So I decided to go a different, uh, different direction. And then in my master's, I decided to become more entrepreneurial to kind of create my own opportunities after taking a couple years off between my bachelor's and my undergrad. So again, really be clear on what you want to set out. And also, if you have uh, the opportunity to change your goals, if you're like, okay, well, I thought about this last year. This is not what I want to do anymore. That's also okay. It's also good to kind of revamp those goals. My second tip for you is to surround yourself with people who will help you grow. And there's a saying that you want to surround yourself with people who are better than you, especially a better violinist, violist, cellist, better instrumentalist or whatnot. But you want to surround yourself with people who will actually help you grow in becoming a better version of yourself. And that's also just being wise with what kind of friends you hang out with, with uh, collaborating with musicians who are like-minded and who, who could actually help you grow in your music and in your career. That is my tip number two, is to surround yourself with people who will help you grow. And to have that growth mindset is also very important because it's going to help you stand out from the crowd and it'll make you more marketable as a musician and people will want to hire you more if you are continuing to grow and you're spending a lot of time with these people. That's what Ken Coleman of the Ken Coleman show says is uh, he created this thing called the proximity principle. And if you are in proximity of the thing that you desire most, or if you're in proximity of the people you want to be spending your time with and you want to be able to play as well as them, then you need to be surrounded by those kinds of people for you to get those opportunities and to grow as a musician. And that directly leads into my third tip, and that is to always improve and to always get better. And you never, you never want to be plateaued at any at any point in your music career, especially if you're um, a conservatory grad right now. You are exhausted from the recitals, from the juries, from all the the music classes, the essays. You just you just had enough, right? And it's really easy to kind of you know, sit back and kind of relax for a bit. And, you know, it's really good to take a break. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm always about taking breaks, believe it or not. But you have to consistently be growing and getting better while you're resting and while you're trying to create these opportunities for yourself. In many ways, it's binary. It's either you practice or you get better or you don't practice and you start to kind of slim down. So that, again, is just that growth mindset that you really want to be under is to just get better. And not just in your violin playing, but as a human being, you want to be better in having good conversations. Um, that's something that we'll be talking about in uh, the interview with David Kim, is you want to have um, a well-rounded knowledge of a lot of things in the world, not just violin. So you want to be growing in other aspects of your of your life too to help you and that leads me to tip number four, which is to continue learning. You need to constantly be educating yourself with new music that's coming out. You need to continue educating with, um, if you're a teacher, you need to be learning about the kinds of materials that 
you know, young, young Suzuki teachers are using or listening to a podcast such as this to continue and to help you grow and to listen to other podcasts. And I also just want to quickly endorse this, you know, it's not a paid advertisement, but you know, the mind over finger podcast with, uh, with Renee, she is doing a lot of great stuff with her podcast that help you get into the growth mindset of practicing and, you know, shout out to Renee, um, to just having an amazing podcast. And if you haven't listened to Renee's um, episode on the Violin Podcast, I really encourage you to listen to that because she offers a lot of wisdom for you to help you uh, continue learning, continue growing with your violin playing. That may also mean that you're constantly reading or uh, reading different books, reading different articles um, from credible sources and doing some scholarships, doing some research on the music that you're performing or better yet, or even just collaborating with composers and you know, learning from living composers and how they how they uh, do the process. At the end of the day, we like what we know and we don't like what we don't know. And we always want to be on the side of the things that we do know. So that way we can have a good conversation. We can approach the music a little bit more intellectually and also just sound better overall. Last but not least, and this is the most important tip that I want to give you all who have just graduated is just to enjoy the process. And I know it's uh, it can be very overwhelming at first because there's a lot of uncertainty that is in your life. You, you have graduated, you kind of don't know what direction you want to go into. But as long as you're enjoying your instrument and if you're enjoying all the previous steps that you are, um, that you're currently doing, you're going to have success just by nature. You know, if you enjoy the process, people are going to see that you enjoy the process and people are going to want to work with you because you enjoy what you do. And I just want to let you know that it's not going to be overnight. The success is not going to be overnight and you're going to want to think, you know, one to five year plan. But truthfully, it took me like close to nine to 10 years for me to actually be where I am today, to be able to speak about violin, to have conversations about violin in, in, a, in a good way, to be able to teach people like you who are the listener, also teaching my violin students. It took me time to be able to kind of formulate this career for myself, to be an entrepreneur. And being an entrepreneur, again, is to create your own opportunities, is also to create your own you know, business opportunities. So just enjoy the process, have a good time, and uh, try not to take yourself so seriously. I know that is, you know, weird advice to give, but I know that like I graduated music school and I must play this and I need to be doing this, but that's not really true. Just enjoy, have fun, have a good time, really enjoy the process because um, you can't play well if you don't feel well. And if you don't feel well, then things just kind of start heading down. I hope you found value. And I'm really, really looking forward to knowing what your thoughts are. Send a message to violentpodcast at gmail.com for, for sending comments and stuff. I really want to get to know what kind of topics you would like me to talk about. This is something that um, I'm really, really passionate about. And I want to make sure that I'm providing a lot of value for you on the Violent Podcast. And I want this to be a resource for you. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, David Kim from the Philadelphia Orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, it is such an honor to have David Kim with me on the Violin Podcast. He is a concert master of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and it's just a, such a delight to have you on, David. Uh, and actually, we met, uh, I was fortunate enough to attend uh, 
the Boston Conservatory, and I played with you in a string ensemble performance back, I believe, in 2013 or 2014. So um, it was such a, an amazing opportunity to perform with you. Thanks, Eric. It's, uh, it's such a pleasure to be on with you, and I'm very impressed with your entrepreneurial spirit, and this podcast is awesome. And I look forward to speaking with you tonight. This is great. Well, you're also a bit of an entrepreneur because you're artistic director of the Kingston Chamber Music Festival in Rhode Island. Am I right? Or was that former? That was formerly. I did. I founded it and I did it for 20 years and then I stepped down after 20 years. But I still go back and, you know, as a guest once in a while. And that was at the University of Rhode Island. I was doing a little bit of research and I and I actually tried to search your name. I'm like, oh, I, I don't think he um, is the artistic director there anymore. But um, do you play a lot of chamber music outside uh uh, Philadelphia Orchestra. I mean, right now, of course, like with COVID times, you know, we're not not able to be together and play chamber music. But is that um, is that your bread and butter outside of uh, orchestra playing? Well, the answer to your question is yes. I've I've played a lot of chamber music, and I do play a lot of chamber music. Obviously, there's something built in, and that is, I'm a member of this wonderful Philadelphia Orchestra with so many fantastic instrumentalists. And so we've all got stuff going on outside of the orchestra and um, kind of a lot of little series around kind of this part of the state that I, they allow me to do like a David Kim and friends every year. So I'm playing with my colleagues a lot. I do a lot of festivals um, during the summer, of course. And um, during COVID, I did quite a bit of uh, chamber music because uh, there was a lot of streaming going on and the festival that I founded in Rhode Island, they asked me to do some chamber music. And, you know, at first it was kind of daunting. I was, all of us were unused to playing with masks and, um, you know, playing on camera is not a big deal, but just, it just felt kind of strange. Um, but we all got used to it pretty quickly. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm always playing chamber music and it's, it's a wonderful perk of the job is that when you have a title, uh, people ask you to do all different kinds of stuff, recitals and play concertos with orchestras and teach and podcasts. And so it's a huge privilege, Eric. And you could argue, obviously, that, you know, orchestra playing is also a bit of chamber music, but you have a very unique role. And a lot of our demographic on the violin podcast are beginners and they're learning more about the violin. And they came across this episode wanting to learn more about the instrument. Can you describe your role as a concert master of, of an orchestra and what you do in and out of rehearsals and during performances? Absolutely. Um, the concert master, just on a pure definition, is uh, the first chair violinist of an orchestra. And there are more violins than any other instrument in an orchestra, usually in a big major orchestra, like over 30. And um, the concertmaster sits in the first chair right to the immediate left of the conductor. And um, back, you know, centuries ago, uh, music was such that they basically had smaller orchestras without so much complexity and without brass instruments. And it, it slowly expanded, but it used to just be smaller ensembles and there was no conductor. And the concertmaster would just kind of play and lead and everybody would watch. But as music kind of expanded and became more and more complex, um, concertmasters became more the leader. And even in England now, they don't call concertmasters concertmasters. They call them the leader. Uh, 
So concert masters began leading more with uh, kind of facial expression, body motion. And then when music became more and more complex, then the keyboardists, sometimes there was a harpsichord or pianoforte, uh, they would kind of lead by stomping a big like stick on the stage. And that would kind of create the beat, but that's loud and ugly. And so eventually the conductor became critically important to keeping everybody together and kind of being the traffic cop and the interpreter. But the concertmaster's role stuck. So for the modern day concertmaster, I kind of represent the musicians of the orchestra. And so even though everybody is looking at the conductor when they're playing, I think peripherally, there's a little bit of peripheral vision looking at the concertmaster as well. Um, so I guess I could say that a concertmaster is kind of uh, a translator between the conductor trying to convey their wishes, how they want to interpret the music to the membership of the orchestra. And I'm trying to read their mind and um, through facial expression, movements, I'm trying to show what the conductor wants. Offstage, I occupy many different roles, uh, including I'm helping with fundraising, I'm in the press a lot, doing interviews, tons of stuff like that. Um, and I serve on the board of directors for the Philadelphia Orchestra. So um, I wear many, many different hats as a concertmaster. And uh, I consider it a huge privilege to do it because I'm not going to be there forever, you know. And so during the however many years I'm in the orchestra, I'm just trying to make sure that I'm a good caretaker of the traditions of the orchestra, of the financial well-being of the institution. And so eventually when I step off that incredible train moving through history, I'm hoping that I will have left it in a good place and have been a good steward of the traditions and of the Philadelphia sound. And the next concertmaster will come up and uh, hopefully take off take up where I left off. Yeah, and I'm, I have no doubt in my mind that you'll leave a, a true legacy. I mean, you you were so kind to me. I remember um, after that concert back in 2013 or 2014, I was one of the weird people that took a program and asked for your autograph. And I was actually before the before the interview, I tried looking for it, but it's like deep in my archives and I couldn't find it in time. But um, that was... Uh, that was that was really really awesome of you to do that for me, and I, I'll never forget that to this day. But I want to dive into, um, you know, you talked about being a leader. You know, you're not just a concertmaster, but you're a leader of the orchestra. I remember you gave me some pointers and some tips. I, I remember scheduling a phone call with you when I was playing Scheherazade in, in my undergrad as a uh, concertmaster, and you gave me a few tips on how to be an effective leader, um, not just by you know, playing the violin very, very well, which I'm sure is very important as a concertmaster, but how to lead an entire orchestra. And I'll never forget that you use a lot of your head and you just bob your head a little bit. And can, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that on, you know, your philosophies as to, you know, leading, you know, one person with an entire plethora of musicians. Well, thanks for your kind words, Eric. I appreciate those. Makes makes uh makes an old guy like me feel good when you hear <laughs> young people it feels like you made a difference in their lives truly really it has made such an impact i mean i always remember that that moment you know just uh, you 
having such an amazing leadership quality, just like in rehearsals. I remember we were playing like Ina Kleine, Mozart Symphony 20, and then I think it was a Mozart Piano Concerto um, with one of the vocal faculty. But it was just like, we didn't have enough time. I think it was like a one week long, you know, rehearsal process, which is actually quite common in professional orchestras. Sometimes you just have a few rehearsals. As I'm, I hope you can comment on that. But anyways, um, I was hoping if you could talk a bit about the, you know, the actual leading part. Well, I think, uh, you know, every concertmaster does it their own way. I mean, every concertmaster is just like every person. They have a different personality. Some are introverts, some are extroverts. Some are scarred by their childhood. Some oh, goodness. are <laughs> exhilarated by their childhood. Some have dad wounds. Some have mom wounds. Some have which one, brother wounds. Some have teacher wounds. You know, like which one would you say? Are you the introvert or the extrovert? What do you think, brother? I think I think extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So, but I'm not as much of an extrovert as you would think. I did this like big personality test couple of years ago and I thought I was going to be on the spectrum like all the way over here at extrovert but I'm actually a little bit more towards the middle so even though I feel that I'm very comfortable speaking to people being in the social eye um, I'm not always exhilarated by the experience sometimes after I'm doing a big interview or something I'll be tired and that's a sign of somebody who's got some introverted uh, elements in there in their spectrum. But, um, you know, in terms of just being a good leader as a concertmaster, um, I think for me, I, I don't want to over dramatize it, but I think that initially the heart has to be in the right place because what's in the heart eventually comes out uh, through speech or attitude or being encouraging or discouraging, all those things kind of come out of the heart. And so if the heart is full of pride and um, resistance to constructive criticism or, you know, things like that, then, uh, then you're already starting the job, a very difficult job with two strikes against you. So that's the first thing is as hard as it is, because I have to say, everybody's always telling me like, oh, great job, Bra bravo, David, really great job. And oh, you're the concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra. But it's easy to believe all that stuff and to feel like, yeah, I am kind of something special. And then then you start going down that prideful road and then that your heart gets a little shell around it. You know, all these things, which makes you one of those leaders that everybody hates. And so I've been down that road too. And it's just really important that you have kind of a servant's heart. And then you learn from many different concertmasters through history, through peer concertmasters, um, through your colleagues who will tell you things, through conductors who are constantly, you just have to kind of have your antenna out at all times and you're constantly trying to learn. And uh, in terms of uh, movement, you're right. I do think of leadership as more kind of big muscles um, and more kind of head motions for cues, not the scroll of the violin, because there's a certain 
distance from the scroll of the violin all the way back through the violin and then kind of to you, your torso, there's this long distance. So if you, if you're kind of lifting and leading with the violin, which I see a lot, I must, I must say, I find that that becomes kind of like, there's a little like disconnect, like there's an echo or something that happens. And so I, I always try to lead with my head. And I find that also tip of the bow is really important because that's really what a lot of people can see from the back of the section behind, way behind me. People maybe all the way across the stage right now with COVID, we're all totally spread out. Somebody might be 50 feet away from me. Right, I was just going to say. The other yeah. side of the stage, like I'm coming in, I'm leading not only my section, but the trombone section. I'm kind of giving a like a group cue. Um, I'm going to make sure that it's not like this jerky kind of quick cue with the scroll, but with the bow, my head kind of like my goal, Eric, is when people come back to my dressing room after concerts, I want sometimes it, ha it happens. They say to me, wow, you actually look much bigger on stage than you are in person, meaning <laughs> I'm trying to give off mass and density in my concert mastering, not quick five foot eight inch Korean guy who's nervous, you know, which is <laughs> what's really happening inside. So I'm trying to give off mass and density and that to me, heavy leadership as if I'm like in underwater because everything has resistance underwater in not underwater. Everything can be very quick and jerky and there's no way an entire orchestra can follow that. I mean, it's got to be kind of like turning a gigantic ship. It takes a while. You can't just make it quick. Actually, what I wrote down as you were saying is you, you're carrying the weight of the orchestra in some way. Uh, I don't mean to over-dramatize it, but yeah, I think you're right. In some ways, at certain points, there are times when I feel like I am towing the weight of the orchestra with me, kind of behind me, like we're all kind of doing it together and I'm trying to be kind of draw a slow bow with density and resistance, not quick bows. Like if you look, if you look on like YouTube, you can see thousands of orchestras. And if you look at the great ones from Europe or United States, you'll see there's a, it looks like everybody's kind of underwater. They're kind of, there's this slow drawing of the bow, slow bow speed. Right. And something that I also just, just by what you just said, I don't, you know, what I teach my students, um, beginners, intermediates, and some are advanced, that if you watch orchestras, concert masters, and soloists, they never leave the string. And I think that's also a testament to good violin playing, just because you get a good tone, but also just getting a good sound, right? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I call it the sticky feeling, like the bow mm -hmm. should feel kind of sticky on the string there should be this kind of i teach that sticky feeling because of you so <laughs> it's really really awesome um yeah. I, you talked about the, uh, the the history of the concert master right um i would love for you to talk about how you got the 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 position at philadelphia orchestra because correct me if i'm wrong i read in a book that you're actually coming out of juilliard and so was chicago symphony concert master robert chen and you guys were trying to audition for the opposite orchestras, right? You were auditioning for Chicago and he was auditioning for Philly, but you actually ended up getting the opposite jobs. Am I correct to say that? 
or so that's what I read in the book. <laughs> it's funny because I think I've never heard that, but now thinking back, I think you might be right, but it's the timing is a little bit more delayed than that. Robert was already a member of the Philadelphia Orchestra in section player. Oh, and, okay. Um, I'm not sure whether he auditioned for my job or not, but um, before I even, you know, there's always a delay. You win the job this season and then you start, you move to the city in the summer and then you start in the fall. And by that time he had already won Chicago and moved to Chicago. But he did during my audition period, take me out for a nice dinner, Korean dinner. And so he's an old friend and his wife also. And now um, showing my age, um, I'm just so admiring of their parenting and they have two wonderful, uh, Robert and Laura Chen have two wonderfully talented musicians, one at Juilliard and one at Curtis. What would you say is your favorite Korean dish? Because my wife is Korean and oh. I eat a lot of wonderful Korean food. I oh. um, We do like a lot of Buddha Jjigae sometimes. I love Oh Buddha. my God. The mil For those of you who don't know, Buddha Jjigae is like a Korean military soup. And you kind of just like put like a whole bunch of stuff in and then you just heat it up and it's just it's just the best. It's it's weird, but it's good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, you know, I um, I like all Korean food, but I guess I like a real summertime. Everybody's sweating. Um, do you get like the I, do you do you eat like the hot chicken soup like during the summertime? I heard that's supposed I, to be. Yeah, I do. That whole like eat hot foods in the summer. And yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, but I, there's something really fun and comforting and familiar about having a barbecue, Korean barbecue, like kalbi. Oh, kalbi. My goodness. Pork belly yeah. and kimchi is now my life. It is so good. Is your wife, is she first generation or did she? She's kind of like a little bit in between. Like she was born in Korea and she, she went to Iowa for school and went back to Korea and now, you know, we're both in the States, of course. But, but yeah, she has like, she's one of those that like describes, uh, music and food. It's like, this just doesn't have enough flavor in it. You know, we need to put some more, we need to, we need to put like more, you know, like hot sauce on that tteokbokki, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, I can tell you're a foodie. Well, you know what? At first I wasn't, you know, I like, I, I didn't found like, you know, like we were traveling and we're still trying to get to know each other. And we were like, you know, there's like a big line at like this pizza place in New York. I think it was Juliana's. I'm like, well, I, don't, I don't see the point of like waiting like 45 minutes for a slice of pizza. And then my wife goes, no, you don't understand what's at stake here. This is life or death. You need to try this. And then like, since then I just started trusting her. And, and you know, she's like one of the, one of the people like, I could, I could cook that. You know, that's, that's easy for me. I can just do that at home, which is, which is real. I'm, I'm so spoiled, which is great. But, uh, yeah, like we kind of just like when we have rehearsals together, you know, she's a pianist and, uh, we have rehearsals together. It's like, it needs a little bit more hot sauce, you know, like it's not, it's not there. Musicians <laughs> are, you know, that's why we're all, you know, overweight and alcoholics because after every concert we want to celebrate and we want to have Her a job well done. Meal. Yeah, absolutely. So I totally even, get it. Even after like a good practice session, I'll be like, you know what? You know, I remember, <laughs> I remember in college, I'll be like, you know what? After a good practice session, I feel like I deserve a beer. Like, oh, that, oh absolutely. Yeah. Are there, are there any kind of like practice strategies that you've come up? Not like, I don't say like practice quick tips because obviously what we do, you know, takes a lot of time. But is there like, can you offer any wisdom to our listeners 
uh, like some kind of practice strategy that could really help them improve their playing? Yes. Um, for me, I dislike practicing. I practiced so much as a child, you know, like five hours a day, year after year, every single day. I mean, never missing a day. So it's just, and, and I think it's part of my personality. I don't want to miss out on what's going on in the kitchen. You know, I just, I, I really find it difficult to get myself to practice a lot, but I have to. So I, first thing for me is literally getting the violin out of the case. And so um, I try very hard to make sure that the conditions of where I'm practicing are consistent and such that I will feel more like practicing. Like, um, I'll talk to my family and I'll say, okay, girls, I have two daughters in college and they are studying all over the house and my wife. And so I'll just say, okay, everybody, can I practice in the study um, from in the morning, nine to 12? And then everybody's like, okay, yep, you can have it. So then I will go in there and I will make sure that everything is tidy. I don't want to have bunch of stuff sitting around and you know popcorn bag of popcorn sitting there and a gla empty glass and, and blankets from in front of the tv no i want everything to be neat and clear and then i clear the desk off and then i get my music ready and i get a cup of coffee and i take a shower if i don't take a shower then i'm kind of still sleepy and like kind i'm of the feeling. same way i'm the same yeah. way i feel like my day hasn't started if i haven't taken a shower <laughs> yeah so i have to do all those things to give myself a better chance to one, start practicing, and two, to be more focused when I practice. Because once I get started, then it's better. And then also I try to um, kind of try to limit myself, actually. If I just say to myself, okay, I've got all morning to practice. Um, let's just see where we end up. Then I end up kind of practicing slower. Like I don't really, I'm not efficient. And so I try very hard to limit myself and I'll say, okay, Maybe I'll say to my wife, I'll say, okay, Janie, keep me accountable. I'm going to be done learning this huge symphony by 12 o'clock. And then will you have, we order sandwiches for us. And so at 12, I'm going to come out and we're going to have a nice lunch together. But unless I'm done with the symphony, I can't come out. And so I will make sure that I'm efficient. Like, okay, by 10 o'clock, I'm going to have learned that scherzo movement. And then one hour more, I'm going to review the first movement. And then I'm going to put fingerings. You know, I really try to map it out and be done by 12. And make sure that those goals that I have are attainable, achievable, not just like crazy, overly ambitious things that are set up to failure. You've been in the Philly Orchestra for such a long time. You've been an orchestral player for a very long time. So I feel like a lot of that repertoire that you've been playing is kind of like maintenance under your fingers. You know, you're kind of just like understanding like, okay, I have to make sure I practice it this way so that way I can make sure I achieve optimum performance. But has there been a time where you're like when you're learning new music and how how long do you usually have when you're learning a new symphony that you, that is not under your fingers? You know, like everybody knows that Schumann Scherzo is in everybody's fingers and Mendelssohn's Midsummer's Night Dream Scherzo is under their fingers, right? But how how do you tackle a new piece that is like completely foreign to you and you have to perform it within a week? Well, that is for me a source of stress because um, I'm not a quick learner. For some reason, I'm not that quick. But I, I took another, oh no, it was the same personality test. It's called the Highlands Ability Test. It's basically trying to identify 
where your gifts lie, where how you're wired, literally, physically how you're wired. And so what I came out like visually, I was like 32nd percentile, really bad. But orally uh, listening, I could reproduce once I heard something. It was I had earphones on. It was like a series of tones and I could reproduce it. Like I was in the 97th percentile. The testers were like, we have never seen anybody with high that high a percentage on hearing. So that changed the way I started learning symphonies. And I realized that for me, it's super important to hear it many times. So Spotify is my best friend. And so I'm constantly um, looking up stuff that's coming up in the following weeks. And even before I get the mute, before the library gives us the music, I've listened to it three or four times, even if I'm not listening carefully, like in my car, driving to work or driving to the golf club, I'll have it going. And so then um, that's the absolute first thing I do is I listen to it a lot. And then I, I find that sometimes I will turn on YouTube and I will um, play along with a recording. And I find sometimes that can literally cut my learning time in half if I'm playing along. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you kind of can tell more rather than I'm again, I'm not visual, so I'm not going to get a score and look at all the parts and study. And I think that's a cliche, actually. I don't think all concertmasters do that. Um, but I will absolutely look. I, I will not look, but I will listen and watch the screen and see a live performance and realize, oh, that huge section with all these little intricate notes, that's 130 to the quarter note, and it's covered by brass and percussion. I don't really have to learn that right now, super carefully, meticulously. It's basically going to be a wash, and it's kind of an effect, or a kind of get it better during rehearsals. But right now I'm going to learn this spot. This line here is a huge first violin section solo. And so I'll put a little X in the margin. I'll put fingerings, I'll listen to it, and then I'll play it over and over. So it becomes a little bit of second nature. I hope, I hope your conductor is not listening about the, <laughs> about the, I, I don't, I don't want to say faking of the notes, but, um, but I like how you said how you don't, you, you have the bigger picture now. You have the you try to get the bigger picture first, and then once you know concert time is you you have it nailed by then. That is that is the most important thing that I want the listeners to really yeah. um, and also get from this. They know the conductors know, but they also understand the way the con the composers have constructed these pieces, and that there are times when it really is just kind of a wash of sound, and they're not looking for. But then there are pieces that are like that. And so that's why you listen. That's why you watch on YouTube. You find out where all those parts are. And then you put a little mark in the margin. And then you just go about becoming familiar with it. So that even under pressure, you can, you can bring it. Right. You were also a participant of the Tchaikovsky competition and you were, a, you know, the first American to have a to receive a prize from the Tchaikovsky competition. Did you use that same kind of approach when you're, you know, prepping for that competition? Did you have did you give yourself like plenty of time, like a year, two years in advance before you came in? And then, yeah, tell, tell us about your experience about prepping for a competition like that so the audience can learn. Right. Well, uh, I should clarify, I was 
uh, of the like eight prizes they gave there in the finals in 86. It was held, mm. it's held once every four years. I was the only American to win a prize. I won the sixth prize. Oh, so, um, yes. So. But still one of the great achievements of my life. But um, it was um, when I first got to college in 1980, I had gone through a very depressing period. My mother had passed when I was a teenager. I was bullied mercilessly at high school. We had moved, so I didn't know anybody. You know, it's just I'd moved from South Carolina to New York State from a very low academic standard to one with an incredibly high academic standard. And I had never done homework in my life because all I'd done was play the violin. Um, all those factors uh, created a very depressing time for me. But then when I got to college, uh, my very famous teacher, Dorothy DeLay, um, said, you know what, let's make a long range plan. So she set the plan for me. She said in 86, which was six years out, she said, your goal is to go to the Moscow in Russia and enter the Tchaikovsky competition. And your goal is to win one of those top eight prizes. And we started working and it was, it was so nice because, you know, sometimes it's really great to have a goal because self-motivation is overrated. It's difficult. It must have been such an amazing experience to get lessons from such a legend, Dorothy DeLay. You know, she is like one of the top pedagogues, American pedagogues ever. Um, is there like a, like, can you share with the audience like a memorable moment that you had with Miss DeLay? Could be anything. I'm just curious. I hate to put you on the spot. Oh, no, no, not at all. Miss um, DeLay was famous for a few things. One was she was always running late like really late oh really she was famous for she had lots of students she accepted in my opinion way too many students for the time available time that she had so um she lived in nyack new york which is across the george washington bridge so under the best of circumstances with no traffic it's probably i don't know half an hour to commute in but with traffic and everything oh it's Really, it can be tough. And then you have to park at Lincoln Center and Juilliard is in the Upper West Side. And so she would teach until till very late at night, sometimes midnight, and then drive her, the last student home. And maybe they'd stop at haagen and get ice cream on the way. So she would go to bed really late, get up late, and then try to commute in. And so she would already start her day like four hours late. So oh, wow. we would sit on her couch outside of her studio waiting for her to just come into the Juilliard. Um, and she was just always running late. Um, but it's funny that you should ask this question, Eric. I was speaking to my best friend, Peter Winograd. He's the first violinist of the American String Quartet and teaches the Manhattan School of Music. Um, one of the greatest musicians and people that I know in my life. And um, he also studied Miss Delay since he was a teenager. And we were saying, you know, Miss DeLay fostered a wonderful, warm uh, atmosphere of non-competition within her studio. So we didn't all oh, like, you know, some teachers will kind of manipulate things to kind of get her, their, her, their students to kind of compete and feel the pressure from that person, you know, so, but Miss DeLay didn't do that. But once in a while, she really had a very kind of subtle and kind of human way of 
kind of just dropping one or two words that would light a fire under our butts. And I remember once she said to me, I, I was trying to get ready to enter the concerto competition in Aspen Music Festival, and it was Stravinsky Violin Concerto, which is very difficult, four Oof. movements, very difficult. And uh, she wanted me to memorize it sooner than later because she didn't want me to memorize it at the last second, and then I would be a little bit on eggshells. So I was bringing up all kinds of excuses. She was like a mother figure to me, but I was just bringing up all kinds of excuses and reasons not to do it in one week. And I will never forget uh, one of my dear friends, classmates, Robin Mayforth, who is from the Philadelphia area here from Delaware. She had just learned it also. And she and Miss DeLay said, oh, okay, that's fine, honey. I mean, Robin memorized it for three days. But, oh, you wow. know, for you, you do what works for you. And I remember I was like, oh, you know, the steam came out of my ears. I was like, She okay, just slipped that on. in there. Goodness. <laughs> so it really motivated me because it was so infrequent that Miss DeLay would say anything like that that I was like, wait a minute, you know. And so I did memorize it. That was her secret weapon. She just had that. She could only use that like once every maybe five years that it's like, well, you could do you. But that other person did it just yesterday. That's right. <laughs> Miss Delay. She was uh, I think she I, she got her degrees from Oberlin and Michigan State. And I believe one of them was in psychology. So maybe she was she was on to something material from her class. Students, if you're listening. I'm going to do exactly that with David's permission <laughs> and uh, Ms. DeLay's permission. But I have a very serious question to ask you, David. What's your preference in golf club? <laughs> well, I am um, a lousy hack. I have a 15 handicap and I'm constantly just using, I have some pings that I've used. My, um, so you're a golfer. I do golf. Yeah, I start. I learned how to golf, you know, like self-taught many years ago. But then I started getting back uh, into it um, last year. I started going to the driving range, and it was like, kind of like it was a little addicting. And I felt like my my six iron, my five iron game was really really solid. But then the driver just like goes all over the place, and <laughs> my, you know, it's just. Cr so, anyways, well, yeah. You know, I um. I come from a golfing family. My father golfed when I was growing up, um, not in the fancy country club sense of the word, but uh, my wife actually grew up and she's kind of like your wife. She was born in Korea and then raised in this country after coming here at age like seven or eight. Um, and she, her father started her on golf when she was like four. Um, and mm. she eventually became an all American golfer Wow! Um, at Ohio state university. And, tried to become a pro. So now she is, uh, you know, she eventually burned out and quit and everything. But um, yeah, we, we love playing golf together. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great joy in my life. And uh, I find it more difficult than playing the violin for sure. Yeah, right. Easier said than done. I mean, just all we got to do is hit the ball straight. And all we got to do is just make sure we play this note in tune and this passage in tune. Um, a lot of it's up here between the ears. 
Do you find that having a hobby outside of music, it, re- it really helps your violin playing? I feel like it does that for me. When I was growing up, I had, a, and the v- listeners already know this, but you know, I was a track and field athlete in high school. And I felt like that was um, such a great introduction as to how to be a part of a team while also making sure that I have the accountability. And I was a, I was a, I was a jumper. I was high jumper, long jumper, triple jumper. And then hurdles when they needed me, although I didn't prefer that. But um, yeah, can you share your thoughts on that? Can does does golf help uh, with your violin playing? Not not the whole like you know the technique aspect of it, but I was wondering if you can yes, uh, share. Absolutely, I think that um, I think that all musicians should try to lead as well rounded a life as they possibly can. Um, I'm always worried when I go to give a master class um, at the big conservatories, you know, Rice or Curtis or Juilliard, and I see somebody I'm guessing is not so well-rounded. You know, I kind of, I might ask them, well, how many hours a day do you practice? And they'll say, well, I do seven hours a day. And I'm like, wow, that doesn't leave much time for life hobbies or exercise (laughs) or being outside. Um, so I think that, um, you, one can be a much more well-rounded and compelling musician with a more well-rounded life of not only getting some exercise and sports, but reading good novels, um, enjoying great cinema, maybe the theater, opera. I mean, being a broad kind of um, broad-minded, open-minded person, citizen of the world is going to create a better musician every time. Although I have to say, I see all the great soloists and conductors um, come through Philadelphia year after year, decade after decade. And some of them are king nerds. I mean, they are like, they are always practicing. I don't think they could throw a ball or run if you gave them a million dollars. All they're doing is just preparing for the next concert. Uh, And they seem to be doing okay. So I guess to each his own and I should not be so judgy. I've definitely taken so much of your time, but there's one last question that I, I, I want to ask you. And if you're to, you know, talk to the listener, you know, one-on-one, and if, if, especially for the musician listener, let's say not for the beginner, but for the actual musician, you know, right now we're in graduation season and a lot of college students are wondering, what am I going to do with my life in music? How do I get started? Where do I even start even formulating a career? Can you share your own experience and how, you know, your path kind of led you to where you are today? Well, everybody has to be entrepreneurial. Everybody has to figure out ways to promote themselves and create opportunities for themselves. Uh, if, if If one is waiting around for the phone to ring or to receive that email with more opportunity, you're going to be waiting around for a long time and uh, feel a constant sense of kind of discontent and anxiety. Um, I have a philosophy and that is that you should do at least one thing every day to promote yourself. And that doesn't mean like 
create your own podcast or create your own website or something every day. I mean, like literally it could be one little email to maybe a conductor that you played with in high school, or maybe it's your high school conductor of your high school orchestra, but just writing a little note. Dear Mr. Thomas, I hope you're well. I just wanted to keep you up to date on what I'm up to. And I just wanted to thank you for everything you taught me It's made a huge impact. And I'm going to be back home for the month of August. And I would love to meet up for coffee if I if you had a moment um, and then send that off. And then suddenly Mr. Thomas is like, you know what, let's have coffee. And then he says, you know what, I need a soloist for next year. It would be so great as an alum that you, you know, see what I mean? That, that kind of stuff every day creating opportunities. Like if you go to church, contact the ministry of music and say, Hey, I'd love to play something for offering next week. And all of a sudden you have a little concert or you contact retirement communities in your area and say, I would like to provide concerts. And if it's during COVID, I would like to provide videos that you can broadcast on in-house video on everybody's televisions, but free of charge, just opportunities to get nervous, to prepare and to perform. So every day, if you can create something like that, all of a sudden you'll be like, wait a minute, this summer I have four things between July 4th and middle of August, I've got four things. I've got two recitals online. I've got a concerto thing with a little chamber orchestra at a camp, music camp. And then I've got, you know, whatever. Suddenly you're like, wow, I'm kind of busy this summer. You know, like that's what you need to do. And that's what I do all the time. Constantly kind of keeping in touch. I keep a spreadsheet of places that I want to pursue. Maybe it's something somewhere I've never been before. I'm just going to call them out of the blue and give it a shot. Might be a place I'd like to return to. It might be a place that somebody conductor mentioned something a long time ago. I'm just going to keep in touch, sending those little, maybe once in a while, I'll even send a postcard from somewhere or a written letter. Dear Maestro, I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. I'm doing these things. And I just know you would be happy for my success and it would be such a privilege to work with you someday, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Well, David, it's been such a pleasure, uh, you know, speaking with you after all these years. And I'm sure that the audience has found a lot of value in our conversation. And if you did find value, please make sure to hit the subscribe button and make sure you follow the Violent Podcast on all social media. And also, I want to promote our mailing list because that's when you can, you know, eventually find some exclusive offers for some products in the future. But also just want to thank for your time, David, uh, for offering your wisdom. And please, please go attend... Uh, classical music concerts at the Philadelphia Orchestra, you will not regret it. And, you know, watching David Kim perform is just, an, you know, you, you see how he's really controlling the weight of the orchestra. So, uh, David, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time today. Eric, what an incredible pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sure.